Let's go. Anybody, if you catch that, yeah. So if you didn't, the, the joke is that a couple last weeks, it was this dope Chris, or Christian like church beat, and then we, we subbed in a little something different, because my first question for you tonight is, what is your favorite Christmas song? So I am actually going to give you a second to turn to someone around you and tell them your favorite Christmas song, but here's this. If you hate Christmas music, I want you to be honest and admit that too, because your neighbor, they'll pray for you, and there's going to be healing in this room tonight. So go ahead, tell your neighbor your favorite Christmas song. <clears throat> all right, all right, all right, all right. I got to cut you off because I know some of you are like me and you need to explain why that is your favorite Christmas song. Like, I get it. I've been there. But you're just the weird one who picked that song. You're just going to have to deal with that for this moment. If I was going to be honest with you, Mariah Carey, All I Want for Christmas is You is up there. Like, I'm not, I can't, I can't, I can't be fake with you. I have to be honest. It's up there for me. But did you know she wrote that and it came out in 1994? Like, this song is almost 30 years old, but yet every year it is one of the most popular Christmas songs that is as part of the season, that they say it's starting earlier and earlier, which some of you are nut jobs, but like early November, it starts to get on the billboard charts. Like, this song that's 30 years old, that every December, in that month alone, every single year, for 26 or 27 years or whatever it's been, Mariah Carey has made between one and three million dollars on this one song. Every, I'm telling, I want to be on that Christmas list for her because she's gotta be blowing this three million dollars somewhere. Like, she's not just hoarding this three million dollars from the Christmas songs. Like, she doesn't need it. She's probably spending it on someone. But she dominates Christmas. Like, Mariah Carey dominates Christmas. And the reason I bring it up to you is because have you ever listened to the lyrics of that song? Not just the catchy beat, not just the holiday feels, not just the, the, it's in the grocery market or it's passing by at your grandma's house. Like, have you ever listened to the lyrics of all I want for Christmas is you? Like, this isn't some weird, like, like, uh, what's the, what's the word? Conspiracy theory where, like, if you play it backwards, like, it really spells Satan's name. But, like, listen, listen this out. These three lyrics point us to an idea that's false. So she says this, she starts off, she says, there's only one thing that I need for Christmas. She just needs that one thing and she continues and she says, Santa, which I don't know who's watching, so I'm not going to say too much, but may or may not be true. Santa, won't you bring it to me? It's all I really need. And then she finishes and she says, all I want for Christmas is you. And she sings this beautiful song. And she serenades that, that person. 
And she says, all I need for Christmas, all I really need is them. And really, what she's doing, whether we like it or not, is she's pitching you a reality of truth. She's trying to at least inform you at the very least, but probably more likely motivate you or elicit some emotion in you to connect with her song. So single people, I'm not gonna call you out, but I'm gonna call you out. Like, when you hear Mariah Carey's Christmas, all I want for Christmas is you, does it remind you that you just don't have that person? That again, another Christmas has come along and I, all I really want is that one person. All I want is you. You're going to bring me fulfillment and satisfaction and you're going to, my longest desire is fulfilled. That's what she's promising, essentially. People in relationships, you're not getting off too easy here. Do you turn over to the person in the passenger seat and start to just belt out, all I want for Christmas is you. You're my love, my desire. You're, you're, you're fantastic. I love you. Is that what you sing? Are you not, are you not, you're not like that. You don't like the lovey-dovey like, okay, I can get it. I like to sing a little bit, no good, but I like to sing a little bit, ask my wife. But in that, that's also a lie because they're never gonna provide you what this season is supposed to provide you with. And I don't wanna tear apart your favorite Christmas song, but I want us to realize that music is a part of culture and culture has this weird way of wanting to impact you. It's true. Like I picked a fairly clean song to talk to you about tonight. Mariah Carey, All I Want for Christmas is You. What if I went through your Spotify, what's the thing called? The wrapped, wrapped? What if I went through that this last week? And I saw what the cultural songs, you, that, the anthems of this last year for you were. For some of you, and I am praying for you dearly, Lil Nas X in that terror, what is it? I haven't written Montanero. Like if, you knew the, if you know the song, there's a prayer team after, like we can, we'll get, I'm just playing. But it's like, it's subtitles like Call Me By Your Name. It literally has been this anthem of our culture. This song that's played everywhere. That's like TikTok famous. Every middle schooler knows it. You probably all know it or have heard of it. I have partially seen the demonic, crazy, satanic music video he wrote. And I looked through the lyrics and I straight up, I couldn't even read them to you. Like, he's inviting like this weird sexual relationship. But that's something we're like, oh, 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 this beat slaps. I'm gonna catch that vibe. I'll play it in the car, turn it up. Like, this is the attitude we take when he's starting to sing that song to us because it's catchy. Or here, I'll change it, I'll change it. Any Swifties in the room? Taylor Swift re-releasing this album and I'm listening to this 10 minute song and I'm like partially through this song and I somehow have now a disdain in my heart for Jake Gyllenhaal. Like, <laughs> I don't know Jake Gyllenhaal, I've never met him, I can't hardly even picture him, I'm bad at actors, but I've, I've heard the articles, I've read them, and now I'm listening to this song, and all of a sudden I'm like, I don't like this guy. He did Taylor Swift wrong. <laughs> and it's cultural music, but it's, it's trying to impact us. I could do movies, I could do TV, like I am a huge Office fan. I love The Office, but Steve Carell, He's feeding me some garbage. <laughs> like, like the way he acts, the way he speaks, the way the office interacts, it's teaching me something. It's forming me in a way that's not good for me, but somehow I continue to come back to it. Or we can go advertising. That's something you probably can't control, but it's something you're seeing. Cultural pressures. 
relationships, opinions, political parties, you name it. This is the culture we live in. I I like to make the joke that culture is the soup we swim in, that there's these different pieces that make it up, but we just exist in a part of it. And when we're a part of it, it impacts us. It changes us. It does things. And the reason I start there tonight is because last week Ben opened up Jude and he started to read through like the first half of the book. And he explained to us why it was important to contend to our faith. But when we open the book of Jude, we have to recognize that he is speaking into a context and a culture very much like what we're experiencing today. That really what he's speaking against is this idea of cultural ideas, cultural teachings, and cultural people. That there was a growing movement in that local setting that would one day become Gnosticism. It was this idea that the flesh is evil, it's bad, it doesn't matter, and because of that, only the spiritual matters. So the things we do in the flesh, it doesn't matter. I can sin, I can do whatever I want. And so that led people into this pagan worship. They would go into these temples, and they would worship idols, and they would do different things, but part of that would include this prostitution worship. They would sleep with whoever they want, they just use their bodies as objects because that's what they believed they were. This Gnosticism. There was these false teachers that were a part of their community who were going against who Jesus was and what he stood for. They were rebuking his divinity, saying he wasn't really God, he was just a good moral teacher, that he didn't really rise from the grave, and so they were throwing out Christ but keeping the Christian morals. That this is what Jude is speaking into, and while he does that, he addresses a second group of people. Verse 1b, he says this, to those who have been called, who are loved in God and the Father, and kept for Jesus in Christ. There's a second group of people that he's called out right here. That group of people is us. It's the Christians that existed in that culture trying to contend for their faith. Those who are called, loved, kept. If you know Jesus, those are titles you can claim tonight. And when he writes to you, there's a supernatural way that scripture reads that he speaks into today. Because as he was addressing his culture, look at how closely the lines to ours. That doesn't our culture say, do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want. That your freedom is your freedom and your actions are your actions. Do you. Doesn't it say that you can have sex with pretty much whoever you want and and as long as it's consensual, like our culture at least gets that, at the very least it gets that, but it says there's no consequences to that, that there's no ramifications, that no people are hurt, it's just you expressing your body because that's what our bodies are, they're just physical, we just have needs and desires. Or if I get into some of the false teachers, we wouldn't call Mariah Carey a teacher, but she's teaching us stuff. I don't call Michael Scott my teacher, but he's teaching me stuff. He's forming me. And he now speaks into this, and he says, you, we, we're a different group of people that needs to be different than the world that we live in. But we're in it. And we can't really change a lot of it. You can get some of the stuff out of your Spotify wrapped. You can change what your Netflix feed looks like. You can change who you follow. You can change what you look at. But in some degrees, we can't directly change culture. 
And because of that, Jude speaks into it and he tells us, this is how you fight. I'm going to say, this is how you persevere for your faith. Starting in verse 16 through 19, I'm going to sum up a little bit of what Ben did last week. It says, these people, they're grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and they flatter others, but they only do it for their own advantage. But, dear friends, and he starts to address a different group of people. He says, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their ungodly desires. Check that off. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts, physical body, the things they didn't value, and they don't have the spirit that's the spirit of God. Verse 20 then says this, but you, but you, I cannot under or oversell the importance of this but. Like it is a huge, massive, enormous but right in the middle of the text. And I know that's kind of like aggressive, but I want it to be aggressive. I want you to notice there's a big old but here. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. And in two verses, Jude has given us how we can contend for our faith. It's beautiful. It's like a pastor's dream. There's a checklist in the text of how we're supposed to fight, persevere. And so I've pastorly named this talk, Four Ps to Persevering. I know, it's great. Such a good title, Four Ps to Persevering. And so the first one is this, practice our faith. We need to be people who practice our faith. Verse 20a says, building ourselves up in the most holy faith. When's the last time you built something? Maybe it was as a kid, you did some Legos, you put them together. Maybe it was a project you did at school and you're like an architecture, like an engineering person, you need to put something together. Maybe it was a construction project at home or at work. Like when was the last time you took your hands and you built something? I'll tell you mine. (laughs) This last, some of you are laughing because you know this is going to, you know how this is going to go. So we bought a house. I'm going to keep trying to say this because the fact is it's consuming most of my life. Uh, we bought, it's great. It's good financial decision, but we bought a house. And so the lady who owned the house before us, she is so kind. Like she was so, so kind, so kind. She bought all of the stuff to install insulation in our garage. I have a two-stall garage. It's like the first time in my whole life I've parked in the garage. Like the Lord is good. When I drive out and I see everybody else scraping frost, I just like laugh now. I just pull out of my garage. But she bought it all and only did about two-thirds of the garage. And she very, 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 very kindly left it for me. However, if she knew my construction skills, she probably would have finished it. But she did it. And some of you, you can start laughing now because insulation is an easy job. Like if you've never done it, it should be easy. You should be able to roll up the foam, staple it in. You should be able to uh, hang up the plywood or the drywall and that should be it. Like it should be a short little quick job. For Brennan, it's not a short little quick job. Like my skills just aren't quite there yet. And so here's where it starts. For me, I'm hanging one third of insulation in this garage. It should take me, I thought, two hours. I'm six hours in. (laughs) 
And I have rolled the foam. They went great. I have a nail gun that I borrowed from my grandpa, and I was stapling it in there, and it was going great. Like, the foam got up in there. It doesn't look great, but it's in there. Then there was this blue cork board, which I'm like, okay, I don't really get it. Like, I already have insulation in there. Why do I need a second? But I did it. I put it up. And this one, I could use the nail gun, too. So it's, you just staple it in. It's like the world's greatest thing. But then there's a third part of insulation is where... I did not do so well. And it requires this tool. I don't know if you guys know what this is. It's a drill. Most of you would laugh because everybody knows what a drill is. The second thing you would assume is everyone knows how to use this thing. You're all probably really good at it. You're like, yeah, you just put it in the screw and you screw it in. I get it. I understand intellectually that my hand and the screw goes in. When my hand needs to put the screw in, I do one of these things. Like, I don't know what happens. Like, the screw starts, like, stri- like I've stripped screws. I strip drill bits. I-, I am bad at drilling. And some of you are like, it's the easiest tool ever. I get it. Stop judging me. But I'm bad at drilling. And so I go to Lowe's, and I need to get screws. And if you ever need to feel inadequate as a human being, go to Lowe's and stand in the screw aisle. <laughs> There's a whole aisle of screws. Like, I'm standing there, people are walking by. If you ever see me in Lowe's, just pray for me. There's a good chance I'm frustrated and overwhelmed. But I'm in Lowe's, and I pick out these three-inch screws. It turns out I only needed two-inch screws, so my screws stick out like an inch, but whatever. Uh, so I'm hanging up these screws. And here's the important part, is I was building something, and building takes practice. The two go hand in hand. In practicing or building something is a process of repetitive, consistent actions. So I hang up my piece of plywood, and I take my screw, my dr- uh, drill, that's what this thing's called, and I put screw in, doesn't go in very good, and then I have to get like a drill bit, and I have to like pre-screw because I'm not good at screwing, and then I go and I do screw, drill, screw, drill. Six hours later, I'm still screwing and drilling. <laughs> and I get to the end, and what I want to tell you is I now am a fantastic driller. That would be a lie. (laughs) I am now a slightly better driller than I was last week. And here's where Jude comes, this is where I'm bringing it back to reality, is to practice our faith, to build ourselves up in what's most holy, it's to engage in something of repetitive, consistent actions so that we would grow, that we would be strengthened, and that we would be better than we were. This process is twofold. Because the first part is it needs to be individual. That all of us in our own lives need to individually practice faith. That apart from anyone else, who you are, you need to get alone with God. Ben preached this message in our first series of the year. It was called Framework, and he talked about private discipleship where it's just you and God and you're being spiritually formed into the image of Christ. Private discipleship, where you're being made to look more like Jesus. The key idea there is you have to spend time with Jesus. You just have to be with him. It's what you were created to do. It is your purpose here on earth is to exist, to be in relationship with God and to make God known. But to be in relationship with God, I think we get it confused and we get it all kind of weird, like what that means. And there's a lot of ways you can live that out. But one of the ways I'd want us to to cling to tonight is just through the Bible. That we have a resource that the early church didn't. We have a resource that a lot of Christians today don't. 
Do you know there's people across the world who don't get to hold the Bible in their hands? That one, for persecution's sake, that it's not safe to own a Bible, but also for translation's sake, that they don't have the Bible in their own language. But yet you and I, as English-speaking people here in South Dakota, get to hold the word of God in our hands. And through that, you can practice what it means to be consistent and repetitive in a pattern that's going to build you up. There's this study done by the Bible, or it's the, the society, oh, I got to check my facts. It's the Center of Bible Engagement. They did a study that showed that if you consistently engage the word of God four times a week or more, it drastically changes your success in ridding yourself of sinful behaviors and uh, bad habits. That for people who did these patterns, who didn't read the Bible four times a week or less, so one through three, they either picked it up either when they were free or available or when they felt like it, for that group of people, which was about 55% of our age demographic, those people, they showed almost no results in these changing metrics of stuff like drinking, pornography consumption, sex outside of marriage, gambling, and other bad habits, the survey labeled. But for people who engaged in the word four times or more, they called it the power of four, those numbers drastically increased. That across the board, 50% more people found freedom and healing from the patterns in their life. Something that's predictable, that's daily, that's persistent, that's consistent, that's repeated. That's how we individually follow God in one way. The second way I want to talk about is communal discipleship, that you and I can practice our faith by living in community. Tonight is a great example. Thank you for being here. You are engaging in the sermon. You are living it out. Congrats. You've done it. But it's not just tonight. It's every week. It's every week we decide to engage in a corporate body to worship and to hear the word. Beyond just a setting like this, it's our small groups. Like, we push our small groups not just because we want you signed up. It's because we see God moving there, and it's a part of what it means to practice your faith. And so some people, you signed up, you were faithful, you did it. You went once and you got scared. Or you went once and it was uncomfortable. Or you went once and it wasn't what you wanted. Or maybe you, were, you did a little better than that, but right now it's just sporadic. Life is busy. I'm tired. There's excuses. Tonight I want to call us back, and I get there's probably only a week or two left. But this next semester, or wherever you go in the future, small groups are something you've got to commit to, sacrifice for, show up for, despite your feeling, despite your, your, your busy schedule, you've got to sacrifice for it, because that's how we practice for faith. And practicing faith, both personally and communally, builds us up to be strong against the opposition of culture. That when other things want to feed in, when other things against the word and way of God want to impact us, we can be strong. The second thing we do is we pray. Verse 20b says, and praying in the spirit. Now this is when some of my <laughs> charismatic friends out there, you got really excited because I talked about praying in the spirit. You're like, oh, he's going to talk about speaking in tongues and, and words of prophecy. And no, we already did that. So haha, joke's on you. But when Jude says here, praying in the spirit, Many scholars believe that it's actually probably not specific to those ideas. That yes, those might play a small role of praying in tongues or, or prophesying and those different things. They may play a small role in what Jude is saying. 
But really, when he calls us to pray in the Spirit, he calls us to pray, period. He calls us to talk to God, to listen to God, to engage him in conversation. And he says, he adds on in the Spirit, because to be Christian is to live life in the Spirit. That when you wake up in the morning and you pour your bowl of Reese's Puffs or Captain Crunch or, or Cinnamon Toast, whatever your vibe is, like when you pour that bowl, you're doing it in the spirit. And when you go and you sit in class and it's biology or it's nursing or it's engineering or it's teaching, you're in the spirit. And when you go to work and you do accounting or you do, uh, the, I don't know, whatever, what all you guys do out there, you do something at your work. When you do those things, you do it in the spirit. When you live life in community with friends and with family, you do it in the spirit. It's what it means to be Christian. So he's telling us, he says, pray as you do your Christian life. When you wake up, pray. When you go to work, pray. When you sit in class, pray. When you're engaging in people, pray. It's said other other ways in the text as pray continually, pray without ceasing. And this is a high bar. And some of us were not there yet. But to get there, we got to cultivate it. And cultivate is a fun word for practice. And part, part two just became part 1B. Because we got to practice prayer. We got to pray. We got to talk to God. We got to get with Him individually, communally. And I got a couple tips just because they've helped me. When should you pray? And the way I answer this when someone asks is I think there's two, two parts to this. I think you should have set times of prayer and spontaneous prayer. Set times of prayer might look like this. Do you have two to five to 20 minutes in your morning, whatever works for you, to pray, to talk to God and to listen to him? Do you have times in, over your lunch hour or in between classes or on a work break Where you say, "Ah, I'm not going to check Instagram for this moment. I'm going to pray. Set times every day. For me, one of my set times is my wife and I, before we go to bed, we always pray together. And then usually, when I'm not being too lazy, I leave the room and I pray by myself. Because I always pray out loud. And that would be weird if she was there and I was praying out loud about something. It wouldn't be weird, but I don't, she's trying to go to sleep. So I leave the room. And that's my set time. Sometimes it's five minutes. Sometimes it's a half hour. But those set times, I think, anchor us to have spontaneous prayer. Where when we go through our days and we're driving in our car, when we're doing all the things that life has, if we have those set moments, they bring us back to a posture, position, and a focus of prayer that can lead us into spontaneous prayer. That when we see people and we see things and we encounter different situations, we can be prompted to prayer. The second tip that I think people struggle with is what to pray. And this is what's helped me. You need to pray both personally and people-oriented. You have to pray for yourself. Some of us need to hear that, that it is not selfish to pray for yourself, that you have needs and desires and wants and things, and you need to pray for yourself, but you also need to pray for others. Most of us probably need to hear that, that your family and your friends and your classmates and your coworkers, they need your prayers. So that's what we can pray for and why, when, when we can pray. And when I sum it down, prayer becomes, it's asking God to help us fight the good fight of faith. That in the midst of culture and everything pushing in on us, we are not strong enough. 
to do it on our own. We need our Heavenly Father's help, so we gotta pray. Three, we have to pursue God. Verse, 21, verse 21a says, keep yourself in God's love. And if you were paying really, 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 really close attention, which probably most of you weren't, but I, I have read this hundreds of times this week, so I, I paid attention, Jude kind of contradicted himself. That in verse one, he actually says, those who have been called, who are loved, and who are kept by Jesus Christ. Kept there is this passive verb. It's not something you do, it's something you receive. Jesus is holding you in your hands. He has you tight. He's kept you. He's guarding you. He loves you. Verse 21, Jude says, now keep in God's love. Keep is an active verb. It's something we must do. But how are we both kept and keep? How am I both, how, how do I recognize that God has me, yet also be trying to pursue God to have me? Like those two seem to contradict themselves, right? Or do they? Maybe they're two sides to the same coin. If you've never been introduced to this idea, welcome to, to the Christian life that you are kept and you need to keep. You are loved and you need to love. You are saved and you need to live in that salvation. This morning at Christianity 101, we talked about you are sanctified. You are made holy by Jesus. Now you need to become sanctified to live out that holiness. This is the duality of the Christian life. It's both and. Is it faith or is it works? It's both. Is it, is it predestination or free will? It's, it's both. It's both. There's this beauty of the duality of Christian life. And so when he says keep ourselves in God's love, it's John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so I love you. Now remain in my love. Jude is hammering home this idea of obedience to a people that have easily become distracted. That they, remember, remember who they are. They have embraced the grace and rejected the truth. They've said, I want to be kept in Jesus. I want to be free. I want to live a spiritual life. I want to have good morals, but I don't want to do all those things God's telling me to do. I don't want to live the way he wants me to live. That's grace without truth. But grace and truth says, I'm going to remember who I am. Called, loved, kept, accepted, chosen. But out of that identity, I'm going to live. And I'm going to do the things God has asked me to do. That's how we pursue God. Number four, we got to be patient. Verse 21 finishes like this. It says, keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. The beautiful part here is Jesus started it. That if you sit in this room as a Christian, it's because of who Jesus is and what he's done. That the only reason we can even be in relationship with God is because of the grace and work of Jesus on the cross. That he has lived the perfect life, he has died, and he was risen for you. That Jesus started it. Now in the middle, we play this teeny tiny little part. We call it faith. It's how we respond to the gospel. It's how we're saved. And then that teeny tiny, so small little part, it gets a little bit bigger when you live out that faith called sanctification. 
It goes from like a centimeter to like two centimeters. Like it's a, it's a tiny little bit of what you give to your relationship to God. But do you know Jesus actually finishes the work too? That he started it? You play this small little piece, just tiny little, I cannot exaggerate how small it is. And Jesus finishes it. Because he's coming back. And even if he doesn't come back, the Christian hope is that of heaven. If you, sorry, even if he doesn't come back while we're here. Let me rephrase. He's coming back, period. But Jesus is coming back. I say this is the most under, let me say, underrated piece of theology. And I say that kind of carefully because it's not understudied. <laughs> oh my goodness, there are a lot of nut jobs out there that have given their whole lives to the return of Jesus and eschatology and, and rapture and, and all of these different things. But the, the nut jobs, and I'm sorry, like I'm, they're not nut jobs. They passionately probably love Jesus, but they give way too much to something that probably doesn't need to be studied quite so much. But it's underrated because all those people, I think they scare the majority of us away from that idea. That we get into a mindset of, okay, Jesus, he's maybe coming back. He might come back. I'll just, I'll just see, if, see if it happens. I'll just live in the present. And if he shows up, he shows up. That'd be sweet. And that's kind of the idea we embrace. But when we do that, we throw away a huge piece of what hope means. Because the reality of Jesus coming back helps us have patience today. Because patience relies on hope. They're connected. It instills hope that the situation you're in right now, the thing you're struggling with, the hurt you feel, the relationship that's just not going the way you want, your dreams feel like they're falling apart, your anxiety's high, your depression is low, you're worried, you've got family members that are sick, I mean, the list can go on and on and on, and I don't want to be the bummer up here. But I told you I wouldn't be fake. And so I want to tell you a little bit of the truth, that life is hard. And if you're in a place today where it's not, praise God. But there will be a time tomorrow where it might get hard. And we got to be patient, because there's a hope on the horizon that if we live today like Jesus is coming back, if we know it and we cling to it, it gives us a hope for tomorrow. And our patience can help us in practicing faith. It can help us in prayer. It can help us pursue God. That they all link on this idea, if Jesus is coming back, I'm living different today. Life and culture, they desperately want to impact you. If you don't see it, I pray that God opens your eyes to see it. That what we, the soup we swim in, it impacts us. And so we gotta fight. We gotta contend. We gotta push. We gotta hold on. We gotta persevere. Let's do it with practice. Let's do it communally. Let's do it individually. Let's love God. Let's, let's be in prayer and talk to him. Let us go to our Heavenly Father, pursuing Him, recognizing who we are, sitting in that identity and living it out. And the whole time, let us do it with the hope of heaven. Pray with me. Father, I thank you tonight for the opportunity it is to open your word. 
And we thank you for the book of Jude that something from thousands of years ago can speak into our situation today. And God, we pray that it would do just that. That tonight as we sit in this room, you would open up our hearts to continue to receive from you. That as our heavenly father who has called us, who loves us and who keeps us, would you meet us here tonight? That even though the word has passed, let it continue to dwell richly among us. Let it be seeds that fall on fertile soil, God. Would you give us the courage to fight? The bravery that in the midst of culture and so many people and movements and ideas circling that want to pull us in different directions, God, would you keep us rooted and established in you? That in a moment like tonight, we can be launched into a life of just authentic faith and pursuit of you. God, we love you. We thank you for the work of the cross that makes all of this possible. Pray that in Jesus' name, amen.